Father, we thank you for your grace that is new every morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is evident when we come together on your day in your house to be with your people. Um, we, we pray that our fellowship would be centered on Christ this morning. We, we pray that the, the passage that we go over would be instructive and challenging and comforting to us that He is Lord of all and that we serve Him. Uh, may our hearts be drawn to Him this morning that we may serve no other but the King of glory who sits enthroned and rules and reigns heaven and earth. We pray that we'd be faithful to Him and that we would be um, moved to examine our hearts to see if we um, have any area that we should repent and trust in Him as being sufficient. And as we relate to one another and those on the outside, we pray that you would uh, renew in our hearts a love for the image of God in men uh, who, who may not seem to um, have any hope of ever repenting and, and trusting in Christ. But, but God, I pray that you would make us faithful to preach the gospel, that you'd make us faithful to uh, pray that you would move in the hearts of men and women that we know and, and are often uh, sometimes feel discouraged about where they are, but, but that you would remind us that, that you're sovereign and that you can do the impossible. So we pray that you would remind us a little bit more of that this morning as we go through this next section in Acts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 10. Uh, we're continuing Peter's uh, meeting with Cornelius. Last week, we discussed the vision of uh, Cornelius and the vision of Peter, and we're looking at the church's move toward the mission to the Gentiles. And so, what were the two, just by way of review, what were the two big issues that we saw uh, with the church? First of all, who, who constituted the church at this time? Who, what was the main group? Jews. Jews, right? And these were very devout Jews. Uh, Jerusalem is where it began. Then we've seen some movement into Samaria. And then there's this, you know, we got this brief view of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, and there's this kind of nod to, to a Gentile there. What we're seeing here is a movement next toward the mission of the church toward the Gentiles. What were the marching orders Jesus gave at the beginning of the, uh, beginning of the book? What were they? Starting with Jerusalem, right? I know your mouths are full, and I appreciate you know, I'll, I'll do, uh, And I hope it's good. Is it good? Is it, okay, good. Uh, the, from Jerusalem to uh, Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, which is the ends of the earth, which is everywhere. So we're seeing that that progression happen, and this is a, a, a big deal. But what were the two issues we talked about last time with Jews relating to Gentiles? And, and what are the obstacles, the obstacles that they have toward moving to this Gentile mission? What, what, do, what do you recall? Clean and clean with eating and things like that. Okay, so table fellowship issue, 
right? How, how am I, as a, as a good Jew, going to enter in the house of a Gentile and not be un- made unclean according to the ceremonial laws of my culture given to me by Moses to be distinct people? I'm going to be, if I'm fellowshipping with these people, I've got to run to Jerusalem, sacrifice, get cleaned again, and come back, if that's what's going on there culturally, right? What's the other thing? It relates to the Gentiles themselves. So some of the question is, and we'll see this later as we go on, and we're not going to get to it today, but chapter 11, do the Gentiles have to become practicing Jews in order to be converts to Christ? Do they have to take on, if they're going to be the new Israel, then do they have to, have, do the males need to be circumcised, do the females and everybody all together eat kosher pickles at the store? This is what's, are they got, do they have to be Jews? So those are the two questions. And we, and we saw last week that, there were, that, that Peter received this vision of this big sheet coming down with categories of animals that, that covered everything. We saw this kind of the picture from Genesis 1 and also again with Noah. This whole, um, the, 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 the sheet had all the types of animals in it. And he was commanded to rise, kill, and eat. And, and there's, he denied it three times. And the spirit kept rise, kill, and eat. And, it, and don't say what God has declared clean is unclean. Or what God has declared um, clean is common. There's this whole idea of, of a, 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 um, a proclamation by God of cleanness is not what you're used to in your ceremonial laws. Right? So he didn't know what this vision really meant until there's a knock at the gate and there's these three guys from Cornelius we need to speak to Peter right and that's where we pick up what was his response to those three men where do we leave that off questioned. they questioned they talked and then what happened he invited them in as his guest right which we would assume would be table fellowship which would be a meal alright so let's look at verse 24 this is where we're picking up chapter 10 verse 24 actually picking up at, at uh, at the end of verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up! I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, 
we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So, so Peter, we'll stop there for a second. Peter, and we learn later, six of the brothers from Joppa, he'll talk about this in, in chapter 11, uh, go to Caesarea along with these three messengers from Cornelius. So there's seven Jews and ten men in all are going to Caesarea. And what's, what's going on at Caesarea in the meantime? What, what, what is Cornelius doing? He's acting in faith by doing what? By calling people together and preparing as if Peter is actually going to come. He is calling a group, right? And, and it says many persons. And he's acting as if Peter's going to come. He calls his family. And it's, it, it, the close friends, the word there's intimate, people he knows really well. He calls them together. And having these people here, what, what's going to be the result of that, do you know? I mean, how? this isn't an isolated thing. It's not just Cornelius. So what's the effect of that? It turns into a blaze and spreads. You, you have a really great, uh, I don't know, core of people in Caesarea now that are there at the invitation of Cornelius, who they love, who they know. And so... It's not going to be an isolated conversion. It involves a bunch of Gentiles. Luke's later going to call this a household salvation in chapter 11, verse 14. We'll talk about that next time. So when Peter arrives with the Joppa party, things, to start off, things seem to start off really right. When he walks in, what happens? He starts to worship him. That's awkward. <laughs> guy falls down at his feet and worships him and Peter maybe delays a little bit I don't, I don't know he doesn't what's the text say what does the text say how does he respond to this Peter lifts him up and and I and I get the sense it's not oh no no come on no. get up I'm a man like you get up don't do that well, actually, this is not an uncommon thing for Gentiles to do. Uh, at that time, the Near Eastern culture was, if you're going to show somebody respect, that you, you bow to them. Kind of like what Obama did to Saudi Arabia. But you bowed to them. And there is, this, um, there is this sense here that Cornelius is going beyond this somewhat, probably because of the angelic vision that he had, uh, that he thinks maybe Peter is more than a man. Because it also adds the worship part of it. So Peter responds, and we'll see Paul and Barnabas respond this way later on. I'm a man like you. Don't worship me. Worship God. Right? So this is the, this is the, the thing. All right. Peter uh, he has him stand up. And in the Western... Oh, this is interesting. In the Western text, there's a, there's a textual variant here that adds, What are you doing? <laughs> to the to the scene, which I think uh, again shows kind of the urgency in mind here. Um, so after this bit of awkwardness, and it, it, there's a smoothing over the awkwardness with some some additional conversation, Peter goes into the house. He's expecting to meet with Cornelius. Have you ever been in a situation where you think it's one thing, it turns into another? He's expecting a small, you know, maybe Cornelius, maybe his wife, whatever. He walks in and it says many people. 
a huge, I say huge, a larger group than he had anticipated is there. Many Gentile persons gathered. What implication does that have for Peter? So he's walking into this room with people who are not kosher, not following the purity laws. What does he do? He's faced with a choice, isn't he? Uh, can we meet outside? Maybe? We need, we need to have some clean air out here. He immediately hits on this issue, doesn't he? It's the first thing he says to them. It, it seems like a, a good time here to address kind of the elephant in the room, and especially for the six guys that came with him who were Jewish, right? They don't know what they're walking into. So what does he say? You know what? How unlawful it is for Jews to associate with or visit with Is there a law? He says, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with people of another nation. Is there a law that says, don't associate with Gentiles? Is, I mean, we went through it, right? A year and a half, whatever it was. I don't remember one. I know not one. There's not a law that says that. But the practical effect of the purity laws make it virtually impossible Maybe you brush up against somebody, you know what they've been touching. You know, I mean, remember all those touch laws? Remember all that stuff? It makes it impossible for people who aren't conscious of that all the time to maintain cleanliness around them. And so it's unlawful from the practical effect, but not the direct command of God. All right. Everyone present needed to understand how unacceptable it was for a Jew to associate closely or even visit the home of anyone from another nation or tribe or ethnicity. By telling the, the Gentiles the conclusion of his vision, he doesn't go into the whole vision that he had, Cornelius will, but he doesn't go into the whole vision he had, but by telling them the conclusion of it, what is he conveying to them? What is he telling them? Is he saying... I'm a Jew and I'm so far above y'all. We're not even supposed to come in here, but I'm going to condescend to you. Is that, is that the approach he's taking? Um, he's leveling the playing field. He's leveling it. What do you mean by that? He's, he's announcing in front of Jews and Gentiles that the, this cultural difference right. doesn't, uh, doesn't have merit in the spiritual realm. That doesn't mean anything in spiritual terms. There's not a barrier there. Yeah, and, and uh, with what is he confessing by saying that? That he's not any better. Yeah, that he's not any better. That maybe his heart had been thinking that there's a distinction there. He goes into, now I know, right? God shows what? What does it say? You think he gets what the vision meant now? I mean, at the language of the, of the thing, at the end of the, the, the sheet coming down? He's using that language. You're not applying it to what he's eating. He's applying it to the people that he's in the room with. With whom he is in the room? I don't know how you do that. Don't judge me. All right. 
He's also telling them something else. Why is he there? Why is he there? At, at what, what events and at whose direction is he being driven to the house of Cornelius? The Holy Spirit, yes. I almost had a drink. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit. This is God's work, right? And what does that convey to the Gentiles? Yes. He is moving the church toward them. They need to be receptive of what God is doing. And, and that's, they're clued in on that by what Cornelius has probably told them about his vision as well. Because God has shown himself not to be a respecter of persons, Peter had, uh, had no right to be a respecter of persons anymore. Uh, okay, so he can come into the house of a Gentile. He can talk to them. I'm supposed to view you in the, as, as one in the image of God, and I can, have, I can meet with you that way. I, at this point, though, Peter still doesn't understand that God is calling him to accept Cornelius as not just another person in the image of God, but ultimately as a brother in Christ. I don't think he's got there yet, because he next, the next statement is, why did you ask me here? Why do I need to be here? So what does Cornelius do? <clears throat> so this will be the third time that we've heard this vision. The third time. Why? Why didn't Luke just say, and Cornelius told him what he had seen, period, next verse? It's kind of leveling the playing field, saying that God is now speaking, the Holy Spirit is now speaking to both Jews <coughs> and Gentiles. Well, in the third time that it's being relayed, it's in the context that the Holy Spirit meant for it to be. Because it was just the two times on the roof, and he didn't do with it, and then it said it happened three times. But it didn't, I don't know, the third repetition is... It's the emphasis again. Intent, but in the intended context. And what is, and what is the, and what is, yes, there's, there's a, but what is the intent of the author... And telling us, that, and we'll hear it a fourth time in chapter 11. Why are we hearing Cornelius the third time receiving this vision? What is the point being driven? And I'm driving it again. God's in charge of what's Yeah, it's God's move. This is a divine, uh, divinely orchestrated event. And Luke spends a lot of time on this narrative. I mean, this is a whole chapter and half of another one we're going to come up. It's the longest one in the book. But it's important. And it's important not just for Gentiles, but it's massively important for the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea that, that are dealing with, what is he telling us to do? We've always been this little nucleus of people, and now it's exploding. That ain't natural. That's not what we're used to. So Cornelius tells him of the vision, um, and he says... And at, at the end of his discussion, um, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That phrase in the presence of God 
is language that that uh, that calls for a picture of a worship situation. Very similar to Acts one, when they're all up in the upper room and they're praying and they're worshiping God, and, and that it's he's setting the scene for that same kind of idea in the presence of God. So then we see Peter realizing, okay, uh, this is why I'm here. So look at verse 34. Let's keep going. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead." To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Dot, 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 dot. What does he say? How does he start this? So first thing, and some have said that these may be bullet points of what he said. I don't know. Some, some say that the sermons and acts are kind of that way, but I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll go with what we have. When, when, um, when Luke... How does he describe what Peter, when Peter finally gets to preach, how does he describe the beginning? What, what does Peter do? It's a language. Opens his mouth. I think that's very instructive to us. He didn't sit there and write an outline, debate, and oh, if I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that. He didn't do all that. He opened his mouth and began to speak. Uh, and, it, and it's kind of reminiscent of what Jesus told them in Matthew 10. When you, they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. The, the issue is to us, we'll take away this, this is kind of the, just open your mouth. We've got to be able to just open our mouths. I mean, all the stuff that we do diligently in preparing, reading the Word, wrestling through the Word, in praying over the Word, praying the, the, for God's wisdom in our own lives, how to apply it, and in, in doing our one-to-ones and what we get from each other on the different angles of how to say things, how to understand things, those kinds of things that are happening, they're in there. And they're growing, and they're, and they're, and they're shaping us into the image of Christ slowly, incrementally, from glory to glory, but it's happening. And so when you open your mouth, what does Jesus say about the mouth? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Don't be afraid to open your mouth. What's there is going to come out. And, it, and here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. 
and it won't be. What happens with Peter is not expected by him. And when we see this coming up, right? He is not expecting what's about to happen. He probably had more that he thought he needed to say. There's always room for one more point. And if you're a lawyer, you're paid by the word, you want more of those words out there. You're just used to that. He's not expecting what's going to happen here. So he, he opens his mouth. He begins what's at issue, his own heart toward the Gentiles. God shows no partiality. I, I view that as a confession of him, that he's being real with them about his own prejudices. But God shows no partiality. I see that. And the, the word there, the Greek uh, for partiality, pulls from kind of a Hebrew idiom, meaning lifting of a face, which is a, 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 a cultural thing that uh, Middle Eastern monarchs would do when they showed favor or they were receiving a petitioner that came into their court. God doesn't show partiality. In other words, God's lifting of the face doesn't depend on ethnicity. What does it depend on? What does it say? Fearing Him, we understand that to be reverence for God and practicing righteousness or doing what is right. Okay? Why would he say that? That bothers me. Well, it juxtaposes the, the Jewish laws and ceremonial stuff that he's been wrestling with. Mm -hmm. And it says, well, you don't have to be Jewish. It applies to everybody. Okay, but he's doing God shows favor... God lifts the face of those who fear Him, who reverence Him, and practice what is right. Who does He have in view? Who, who has been at the forefront in this passage as being a man who is very pious? Cornelius has been, I give alms, he's been praying, he's been this, this ideal proselyte for Judaism, and, and Peter says, God lifts the face of those who fear Him and practice righteousness. Now, does this bother you that he would say that? It sounds like works-based, work doesn't it? I, I think to me, what I take away from this is, is that, um, that God moves in the hearts of all kinds of people, and those He moves in their heart, He's not going to leave. He, he's not going to leave them without the truth. Okay. Those who, those who he's moving, he's obviously moving in Cornelius's heart to seek out who God is, and he didn't leave Cornelius to figure that out by himself. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Two two issues I want to bring up here. One, this is not a treatise on the relationship between faith and works, and we need to understand what the context is and how we address our doctrine is not based upon a historical narrative it is based upon you know more didactic we'll see in Paul and James and those that's where we need to pull from this is just saying what happened so number one we don't pull our you know we don't we don't hang our hat on a piece of doctrine based on on one statement in Acts we look at the whole counsel of God number two is what Tammy said. And the early church fathers wrestled with this issue. How do we deal with the faith works thing with Cornelius here in Acts? You know? And I think, I think Augustine did it right, because I, I like Augustine. 
Um, and I think he did it right where he said, I don't want to hear that mess. <laughs> we don't say Palestine. <laughs> um, anyway, I think he got it right in that when God moves on the heart of a person, it naturally has a, 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 a zeal for, a, a trend toward what is good, right, and true. That, that we see a fear of God, we see a, 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 not a, again, not perfect, it's a practicing of righteousness that we see there. And we see here um, that the, the, uh, the greatest expression of God's grace that is given to Cornelius is believing the gospel. So there was a, there was a progression of grace that's going on with Cornelius where he's, I mean, he's a Gentile. He is in leadership. He's, he's very, appears to be well off. How hard is it for a rich man to come into the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus had something to say about that, and yet here he is. So he's, he's taking on the God of a conquered people by his nation, right? And he's viewing, he's a God-fearer. He's actively engaged in the, the this is the, what he knows to do. And so God is bringing him incrementally to this point in the gospel and displaying that, not only for his benefit, but also for the benefit of the Jews that are, that are witnessing this. All right. It's just saying that there's, you break it down, he's just really saying you know who God is. To, uh, like to have the fear of God <clears throat> is to understand God. Right, God. right. Those who don't fear God may know who God is, but they don't accept him. So if you fear God, you know who he is, and, and you accept that. And then it's just a response. You're doing righteousness is just, there's a, there's a saving grace and there's a response. It's all he's saying. Yeah, and there's, the fear of God will lead me to act there's a on the fear, positive on, the, on the reverence. Yeah. Yeah. Fruit. fruit of the reverence. Okay? Also, I, I think the way he addresses them is very respectful for him to say, you yourselves know. He's like including them in knowing what happened with the life of Jesus and with even with the Jewish history. Right. He, he's, he's saying you're not ignorant. Right. And he's addressing them in a respectful way. Well, yeah. It also shows a change that God has made in his heart. <clears throat> right. And when he addresses the history, it's not like this stuff happened in a corner. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, they're familiar with it. They're in that area. Um, there is a corrective here. That there, is a, there is, again, a nod to what we would later see expressed uh, by Paul and James, that, that grace implicates the practice of righteousness. They are inseparable. They're inseparable. Alright, so how does he describe Jesus in verse 36? What does he say? How does he describe Jesus in verse 36? Lord of all, that's kind of a big title. Lord of all, that has implications. That would be hard for a Roman Gentile to hear, I think, at the time. You mean your Jewish rabbi is Lord over, uh, or conquered you, right? That would take a little humility on his part to buy that argument. What else, how else does he describe Jesus? The Word. The Word. That sounds very John-esque. The Word that was sent to Israel, and what's the implication there? 
He's Lord of all. This word that was sent to Israel is also a word that he is sending to you, right? This is the progression. Jews first, then the Greeks. Uh, Ephesians 2.17 would say this, And he came and preached to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. If he's Lord of all, then a worldwide witness and worldwide fellowship free of all cultural prejudice is crucial among believers. He's making the argument to them that fellowship with Jews is just as demanded on the Gentile side as it is on the Jewish side. And so then in verse 37, he gives kind of an outline of Jesus' ministry. And, and this is unique in Acts. Most of the sermons you'll see in Acts are going to be about the death and resurrection and his ascension. They're, they're focusing specifically on what the apostolic witness is. Because he already says, you know about all the events that happened. You know about his ministry, John's baptism. You know about the miracles, all of that stuff. But he is pointing to the apostolic witness of we saw him, we ate with him after he rose from the dead. And so he's doing what he's been called to do as an apostle. Um, where does he go in verse 39? So he, he emphasizes the witness, and it's an important issue to, to emphasize, especially for the Gentiles, the bodily resurrection is going to be, I mean, that's kind of a new concept for them. They, they had some history of it in Israel with Elijah, Elisha, we, you know, we've seen some of that. But in Gentile, in Gentile world, that, that's foreign. Pardon the pun. Um, Acts 17. He gets laughed off of Mars Hill because he spoke of a bodily resurrection. So he goes there. He, um, he, he also introduces another new concept to them. That is a cosmic judge at the end of of time. And look at verse 43. Does that look like a logical place to stop? Does that seem logical to you? It's like you get the end of your notes and more could be said, right? The prophets of old told that if we believe in him, faith and repentance in his name, uh, you'll be saved. And it seems like, the text kind of seems like, Peter's about to launch into, and he told them all the things concerning himself from Moses, you know, beginning with Moses and forward. I mean, that seems like that's where he's going. He's about to go into a full-on, hour-long sermon on the prophets from Genesis to Malachi. That's the impression. And something happens. Peter doesn't get to give his altar call. I don't see the tenth course of just as I am going on here. It's like, and, and Luke indicates, <laughs> I see that hand. Luke, it says it sort of here, right? He says it here. He goes, as he was speaking, while his lips are moving, while his mouth is still open, saying the gospel and pointing to proofs of Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, what happens? The Holy Spirit doesn't wait for Peter's altar call. He doesn't wait for his invitation. 
He doesn't wait for him to come up with a perfect summation to his sermon. In fact, the implication that we can draw from this for preachers and for teachers is that sometimes your sermons are just too long. (laughs) He also didn't wait on the people to make a decision. And he didn't wait on the people to make a decision. Well, that's also true. All right, I found that very instructive this week. But not instructive enough. We're going to keep going. (laughs) I think the spirit is now falling. Can we bring this to a close? All right. This is, what does this demonstrate? What is this sign? What is it? What is it? What is important about it? This isn't a simple, I say simple. This isn't an expression of, of boldness like we saw with Paul, right? I mean, this is, this is something that, I mean, you, you can hear this. You can see this. It's very objective. Why? Why does it need to be that? To be equal, and what, to, for whom? For whose benefit? <coughs> for the Jews' benefit. For those back in Jerusalem, when they hear this report in chapter 11, well, the Holy Spirit fell on them like it fell on us. And in fact, all the smart guys, most of the smart guys, call this the Gentile Pentecost. <laughs> it's not repeated. It's not something that you is programmatic that needs to happen every time they go to a new town. It's the sign of the Spirit that this part of the mission is, is divine. It's moving forward because of what God has done. His, his objectives here. What's the sequence? Just, just notice the sequence here for all your Church of Christ friends. Notice the sequence of events here. First, the preached word. Then, what? The Spirit falls. Then, no, we're not circumcised. Then, that would... Church attendance way down at that point. Then, baptized. Does that throw your theology in a tailspin? Doesn't us. But notice the sequence. The change of heart came that such that the Spirit is moving on them, that they're speaking in tongues. There's this objective, verifiable movement of the Holy Spirit before the visual of baptism. It's, what is a symbol of an inside? What's going on inside? I, I forget the Baptist lingo there. So you have... A nod to the fact that we don't have to find a particular order here for things. The wind blows where it will. He moves how he will. The the important thing here, though, is this is an undeniable move of the Spirit that would break through the objections of the Jews back in Jerusalem. And we'll see that next time. But Peter stays, they invite him to stay for a few days. Do you think that for those days he had problems with table fellowship with these new believers? I think he overcame that a little bit. Uh, Pretty clear indication. All right. As we wrap up, because I don't want to be guilty of violating the instruction that I've been given in this passage. (laughs) A couple of observations. Christ 
as Lord of all, has commanded us to preach, not be preachy. We're to open our mouths out of love and concern for those who are in imminent danger of God's justice and tell them of God's mercy. Uh, another observation. Christ, as Lord of all, is gracious to all who believe, even those we would never think would believe or those that we would consider unclean. Does that affect you at all? That affects me. I, I can be very... I have a prism that I wear that kind of weeds out the people I think are probably not going to respond anyway. You know. I mean, we never say that. I, I guess I just did. But we never really admit that openly. But do we kind of move among people that way? Hey, it'd be really great if this sports guy got saved. Right? That always works out well. Uh, it'd be really great if this you know, rock star got saved. It'd be really great if this, but not this guy over here. He's, he's pretty coarse. He's pretty uncouth. He wouldn't, be, uh, he wouldn't be good to have in church if visitors came. It's easy to get in that mold, isn't it? If he's Lord of all, it includes the uncouth. It includes the unlearned who haven't read all the cool books that we have. Right? Our mouths need to be open and indiscriminate in proclaiming the gospel. I was thinking about that um, and what you said last week about do we have things that we kind of hold on to. And I don't know that we really do it as a, um, like saying this person is saved or not saved, but kind of the way we run, I'm not talking about like I'm against systematic churches and whatever, but... Um, we kind of have a tendency in America, I guess, because we're very capitalistic, to look at the people that like wake up before 6 a.m. and tuck their shirts in and like their hands with a firm but not too firm grip. It's like those are kind of the people we look up to. Right. So we kind of respect them more. Yeah. Although the untucking the shirts is going to be a little bit more in trend. I, yeah. I think we're. we're so if you have a whole clothing line for untucked shirts. I don't either. Yeah. That we have an our, our, we have an ideal in our head yeah. of of who should be in and who should be out. Right. And I think they did. Obviously, the Jews did. Obviously, Peter did, and that was shot. And I, I guess the the what I would like for us to draw out is we're not above that. We're not above that. Um, when, yeah, when when Paul says in Second Corinthians thirteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there, and I'm just going to give you a kind of a, a clue in the language, all means all. It really does mean all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is extended to all ethnicities. I had a great conversation this week about the concept of race. Race is a pagan concept. It flows, it, there's now scientific-esque uh, you know, cover for it in, with the evolutionary theory. 
But basically all it's saying is that there are different gods who created different peoples and the strongest of the people have the strongest gods that conquer. So if you have evolution, you have different grades of evolution. Some races are less evolved than others. That's why they're still third world and we're first world. Completely pagan idea. You can sanitize it with a scientific uh, textbook, but it's a pagan idea. And it was noted at the time, that's why, I mean, Darwin talked about that certain races were less developed, therefore that's, you know, we were above them. Clearly accepted, clearly understood the, the implication of that principle. Not so with us. That's not who we are. That's not our worldview. It's not God created one race. There are different ethnicities, there are different cultures, there are things that, dis that, that cause us to be somewhat distinct in how we live, but it's not value, worth, or ability. It is, um, we're all in the image of God. One image, there it is. We're all stamped. But God does create nations and sets borders. He does. I think some of that is to keep us from killing each other. Right, so, yeah, that's kind of my point. Yeah, but it's not in value. I think that's my point, is that it's not in yeah. value. Right, right. There, lest we um, have, you know, uh, building, building something to God, making ourselves like God, like one, we can, we can do better through the UN, which that, that works well too. Um, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all means all, Jew and Gentile, Arab and Jew, male and female, moderate Republicans in the Freedom Caucus, we're all told the same thing. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a command. It's not an invitation. He's Lord of all. The command to receive mercy is to all. And if the Spirit extends His fellowship to all categories of humans, we should as well. God is gracious. We should be as well. All right. Any any comments? Kevin? Yes, sir. Uh, just kind of a quick observation. Uh, you've been talking about, uh, you know, don't call common what is clean and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. That seems to me almost like he's kind of turning back and talking to the Jews a little bit. Yeah. He's saying clearly God's working on these guys. Right. So we don't withhold right. fellowship with right. them. Who does that sound like, by the way? Uh, the eunuch. The eunuch. Yeah. What's to prevent me from being baptized? The eunuch asked. That was the Gentile asking the Jew. Peter says the same, basically the same thing. And I, and I wonder, I had the same thought as he talking over his shoulder. Hey, you guys, you know, you six behind me. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. What's to withhold? Why, are we, why would we withhold from them? Yeah, good. Anything else? Okay. I guess I was sufficiently clear. What, a, what an anomaly. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, may we be humbled by this narrative 
to search out the prejudices and biases in our own hearts against people that are created in your image. May we take this and throughout the week with wisdom open our mouths to proclaim the time of mercy, the time for repentance and trust in Jesus, that He is Lord of all, that He is the standard as the judge of the living and the dead of what is good, what is right, and what is true. Everything else is a puff of smoke. Without Him, life is reduced to absurdity. God, would you give us wisdom in proclaiming that message? To do it in a way that is gracious and not creating more obstacles than, than are already there when we say that men are dead in sin and they need a Savior. And as we go into the next service, I pray that you would open Philip's mouth to us this morning. That your spirit would proclaim through him what we need to hear this morning. May we leave this place today loving Jesus more than when we walk through the door. It's in His name we pray. Amen.